<laughs> hey, Miles, whoa, was that the next wave theme song? The captain! His name is the captain! I will take that as a yes. Uh, sorry, all the Boom Boom stuff got me thinking about it again, and you know how it is. One thing led to another, and then... Air guitar? Uh, yeah, basically. Seriously, though, what is Next Wave's relationship to mainstream continuity? It's gotta be its own timeline, right? It was originally. But not anymore? Well, it is and it isn't. I'm not quite following. Okay, so remember the Beyond Corporation? You know, the big bads from Next Wave? I thought the big bad from Next Wave turned out to be Devil Dinosaur. Again, yes and no. I'll get there. Anyway, anything sound familiar about the name of that one corporation? Beyond Corp- Oh, no. Oh, yes. It's the Beyonders. Oh, wait, plural? Wasn't one enough? Oh, Miles, they're a whole race. Do the other ones at least know how to poop? Presumably. But anyway, there's a group of renegade Beyonders called the Debasers. The Debasers? Wait, aren't those the guys who killed Miss America's moms? Yeah, those guys. Anyway, the Beyond Corporation and Next Wave is basically just the Debasers getting bored, trolling the hell out of the 616, and then sloppily erasing most of what they did out of the timeline. That's why, for instance, Devil Dinosaur is alive and doesn't wear a smoking jacket, and why Monica Rambeau remembers some of what happened, but most of the other characters involved don't. Oh, God. I mean, basically, they are Beyonders. Did they ever come back? I assume so, since none of this was established in Next Wave proper. Oh, yeah. The stuff I'm talking about is all actually from Captain America and the Mighty Avengers. What happened? Well, the Debasers found their way back into the 616 by way of a dude named Jason Quantrill, who'd been messing with interdimensional portals. They hollowed out Quantrill and used him as a front, along with his company, Cortex Incorporated, which is basically a Google stand-in. I thought Serval Industries was the Google stand-in. There's room for more than one. I guess. Anyway, the Debasers showed back up and started messing with Monica again. Ouch. How do you get rid of a whole pack of Beyonders? Well, you return from a period of exile in the neutral zone with godlike powers and boot them back to the fringes of the omniverse. Monica Rambeau did that? No, Blue Marvel's kid, Kevin. How'd he end up in the neutral zone? Fighting a dude named Evald Scorpion. Is Evald Scorpion a Beyonder? Nah. Huh. Although he did later become the four-dimensional crystal brain of a half-gorilla, half-scorpion. What?! J. Rachel Edidon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 106 of J. and Miles' Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera. And we are now back from Seattle, although we're recording this before Seattle, because of time travel. This is getting very podcasts of future past here. Oh, geez. Um, it's possible that between when we record this and when this airs, Sentinels will have taken over the world. One can only hope not. But regardless, we're going to talk about sort of a standalone thing that is not a standalone thing today, that being the Exterminators miniseries of the late 80s, which is sort of its own thing and sort of an Inferno tie-in. Definitely an Inferno tie-in. In fact, this is technically and officially the first episode of our Inferno coverage. Welcome to Inferno. So... What is Exterminators? Exterminators is, as you would guess from the name if you've been listening or following X-Factor, sort of an X-Factor spinoff. It is specifically a four-issue miniseries. It's a little bit longer than usual, I think 28 story pages per issue. It's written by Louise Simonson, and it is drawn by John Bogdanov. I'm trying to think of where we last saw him. It would have been on a New Mutants title. And specifically, he is the guy who Annie Nascenti once described as drawing, quote, the best hugs in the biz, unquote. He is someone whose work we have consistently really loved and Honestly, I cannot think of an artist I'd rather have seen on this series. Yeah, he's great for this. 
I first became aware of his work in Power Pack, also with Louis Simonson. And we get that same kind of exuberant, enthusiastic energy in this book. Also the same kind of cartoonishness, which works really well. You know, it's funny you mentioned Power Pack because he's an artist I associate very, very closely actually with another Power Pack artist, June Brigman, who's got the same kind of expressiveness. Yeah, yeah. Different styles, but similar tones, I suppose. So Exterminators is a weird fit. On one hand, it's technically a miniseries. It should stand alone, and three issues of it effectively do. The fourth issue, on the other hand, ties very, very tightly into the New Mutants Inferno storyline. So we're going to try to encapsulate all of it in a relatively comprehensible way, but understand this isn't ultimately going to be a complete story. It also draws very heavily and comes directly out of X-Factor continuity. So I think if you were coming straight into this without having been following that series, you'd be pretty lost as well. With that in mind, let's do a brief recap of the X-Factor stuff we're coming out of. Previously on X-Factor. Okay, so X-Factor has been taking in mutant kids and teenagers basically since the start of their book, you know, bringing them in from dangerous or unfortunate circumstances, training them up, giving them a place to live. For the first long portion of that time, they were doing that as two organizations, X-Factor, which was the official front who were nominally mutant hunters, and the Exterminators, which were another set of cover identities, which were the same people just being renegade mutant terrorists when they had to actually use their powers. That's the group who the team in this book takes its name from, although it's not actually the same team. So let's talk about who is on that team, which is to say the new team, the kids. These are, again, the group of kids whom X-Factor had rescued over the first uh, 30-odd issues of their series. We've got Rusty Collins. He is a runaway from the Navy. He is pyrokinetic. He horribly, horribly burned a prostitute who he was with when his powers first manifested. He is officially on the lam from the naval authorities. He also technically has a code name, which is Firefist, but he's only been called that like twice ever, and it's kind of dumb, so we just call him Rusty. Yeah, we prefer not to acknowledge that code name on account of it being stupid. Yep. Second, we have Sally Blevins, who is Skids, so she's a Morlock that X-Factor took in. She has a force field that she has trouble turning off, hence her name, she skids off of various things. And she has amazing tiger print pants. Third is Julio Esteban Richter, whose codename appropriately is Richter. He's Mexican. He's a little bit younger, I think, than Rusty and Skids. He has earthquake powers. And X-Factor picked him up when he was being held hostage by the right. There's an organization run by Cameron Hodge, the former PR director of X-Factor, uh, Warren Worthington's now-deceased former best frenemy who turned on Warren out of jealousy and possibly misplaced romantic feelings and started an evil anti-mutant genocidal group called The Right. For more information, check out episode 102 and also, like, 50 other episodes. And last of the older kids, we have our personal favorite by a landslide, that being Tabitha Smith, Boom Boom. Boom Boom is officially the only good thing to come out of Secret War 2. Yeah, she kind of is. That's where she first appeared. She makes time bombs that she counts down as she throws them. She has a hell of an attitude, doesn't get along with anybody, is really full of herself, and is hilarious. She likes sunglasses, neon colors, and not giving a damn about authority. She's actually a really interesting character, and yeah, one of my very favorites. Like, Me too. She is often overlooked. We've also got two other characters, one of whom is original to X-Factor, and one of whom had showed up previously in other X-Books as one of the Morlocks. Those are Pink Moppet Artie and Green Moppet Leech. They're both mutants. Artie can project sort of psychic images of what he's thinking about. He uh, is mute, and Leech cancels out superpowers whenever he is near the people who have those superpowers. And those kids came in and got, you know, personalities and backstories and then really faded into the background and were significantly overshadowed by the adult soap opera for a pretty long time. This is their chance to come into the fore and have their own damn miniseries. The context in which this miniseries occurs is that X-Factor decided that the kids should really get a normal life and a normal education and not just live on a talking spaceship where they get attacked about every four seconds and go off to school. The older kids were sent off to Exeter Academy. It's been alternating between whether they're being sent to Exeter or Andover, but once they actually get to the school in this series, it's Exeter. 
It's worth noting here, by the way, that mutants are visible and out enough now that the way they're doing this is with an endowed scholarship specifically for mutant students. Yeah, that was set up by Angel, I believe, because he went to Exeter. Yes, before he died, came back as a horseman of apocalypse, got bladed wings, decapitated Cameron Hodge, and then walked off into the sunset with Candy Southern's body, which happened last, you know, we saw X-Factor. And the younger kids, Artie and Leech, are being sent to a special needs school, which I believe is called St. Simon's, where they're going to get helped out. So that's where we pick up with the kids, but there's also been a thread going on in the background, that being what's up with the demon Nastier. Right, now, Nastier is some sort of high-ranking lieutenant to Sim. Sim is a demon, he is in limbo, he is the primary threat to the authority of Ilyana Rasputin, the Dark Child, technically the ruler of limbo, whose power has been significantly usurped at this point by Sim. Nastier, in addition to helping Sim out, also aspires to the throne of Limbo. He has his own designs going in the background. A lot of those designs involve the Goblin Queen Madeline Pryor. That stuff is going on mostly in Uncanny X-Men, but where it intersects here is that Nastier has been sent to Earth to collect a bunch of mutant babies. And presumably there's a reason. It's not just like, hey, Nastier, can you just give me some babies? I don't know why. I just feel like having some babies right now. You know, well, they're demons. It's some combination of occult purposes and basic sustenance. Mmm, babies. Them are good eating. This is going to devolve into a whole bunch of Snowpiercer references, isn't it? <laughs> it probably is. Snowpiercer, the movie where Captain America tells you about eating babies. Hey! A weird movie. Okay, so that's basically where we start. How does our arc start? How does the Exterminators miniseries begin? Well, it starts, as I mentioned, with Sim and Nastier fighting over control and dominance in Limbo. Sim, at this point, is largely in charge, and he decides he's going to get Nastier out of the way by sending him to Earth to kidnap 13 powerful babies for some vaguely defined ritual. Nastier brings with him a small horde of demons or goblins. The terms are used largely interchangeably in this series and in the Inferno arc in general. And they set up their base of operations at a cemetery run by former EC editor-in-chief Bill Gaines. Yeah, there are a number of references here. I mean, not as many references as you see in like an Art Adams comic, but still quite a few. Yeah, so seeing this dude who's clearly this historical figure from comics reading tales from the crypt, it's kind of fun. Yeah, there's um, also a Frederick Wortham's on a tombstone there. Yeah, he was the guy that did the whole seduction of the innocent thing with kind of demonizing comics back in the 50s and made them all Baudelarized and stuff. Uh, yeah, who's largely responsible or well, partly responsible. His influence has been largely exaggerated, actually, in historical accounts. He was one of the figures who was involved in the congressional hearings that led to the creation of the Comics Code Authority, which ironically was created by the industry, largely in a concerted effort to push Bill Gaines and EC out. Unfortunately, Bill, the uh, cemetery groundskeeper, fares even worse than his real-life publishing counterpart. He is captured by demons and transformed into one of them. And I love the way this works, because we see in this miniseries a few times that Nastier can take humans and basically... It's implied use his claws and teeth and supernatural creepiness to, like, shear away the parts of them that are not goblin-y. Like, he cuts yeah, parts of them off. Yeah, to shear away their humanity and virtue. Yeah, but also, like, to do it physically, not just sort of conceptually. Among the goblins who are with Nastier, mostly they are a nameless horde, but one of them has a name. One of them's got a little more going on, and that is Crotus. Crotus is basically Nastier's second-in-command and looks a lot like the other goblins. Crotus is colored more distinctly brown than the rest of them. That's the way he's most recognizable. Yeah, I think he's a little bigger as well. Yeah, as opposed to Nastier, who's not even remotely humanoid. Nastier's like this big bird lizard something or other. I always saw him as more equine. Uh, yeah, there's a bit of horseness going on, it's true. I mean, I might be predisposed to see the mnemonic in horses, but... Maybe, although Battery Bill is rad. He is. He is truly cool, but he is also engineered to be specifically fearsome, so... Mm -hmm. What about Butterrum? Butterrum didn't do nothing bad to nobody. As far as you know, maybe Emma Frost knew something you didn't. Oh, man. Anyway, horses aside, 
one interesting thing is that Crotus refers to Nastier as Mothter, Master. Spelled, I think, M-A-W-T-H-E-R. Uh, something along those lines. And I think this leads to a lot of confusion because that could certainly be read as Crotus referring to Nastier in his weird goblin dialect as Mother, which well, would that imply... that was how, how you read it as a kid, right? It was, yeah. So I was always confused. I was wondering if Nastier was supposed to be female, even though Nastier was usually referred to as male. I think, though, in retrospect, Crotus was trying to just say master and saying it weird, which makes more sense, maybe. Look, Miles, goblins do not necessarily pronounce words the way that you do, and expecting them to accommodate your specific Earth and even English needs is really, really ridiculous and unfair. I don't want to be ethnocentric. Good point. You shouldn't be. So, speaking of goblins and the things that they don't know, the goblins know that they are here for babies. But they do not know what babies are. They have lived in limbo. They are familiar with goblins and fire and probably like swords, but not so much with babies. They're picking up random animals they find in the cemetery and being like, are these babies? Are these babies? Here's a candy wrapper. Is this a baby? I found you a rock. Is this a baby? Grandpa, that's not death. That's a cat. Grandpa, that's not death. That's Maggie. Aw. Finally, Nestor gives them some guidelines, specifically that they're humans. They're small and they have large heads, no hair, and big innocent eyes. So, speaking of people with the least hair, the biggest heads, and the roundest, most innocent eyes, we now cut to Artie and Leech. Yeah, man, by Nestor's description, they are basically the babiest of all babies. They are super babies. Tell me more about how I'm a super baby. I will do nothing of the sort, Solid Snake. Get back into your codec. That was a really deep cut right there. there was was this, it? A lot it's of a people played that game, man. Well, right, but there was the thing online with the thing. Doesn't matter. Okay, yeah, Super Baby Project jokes forever. Point being, Artie and Leech are hanging out with the rest of the X-Kids, the rest of X-Factor's wards, because they're all saying goodbye to Rusty Collins. Right. Rusty has decided that he is going to turn himself into face justice. Faced with the prospect of registering under the Mutant Registration Act, Rusty has decided on a compromise solution that he is going to draw attention to this unfair law to the Mutant Registration Act by going ahead and submitting to the somewhat fairer, you kind of need to be accountable when you set someone on fire, even when it's an accident end of the law. Right. So he's turning himself into the military police. And I gotta say, Rusty Collins has never had a very solid personality, even though he's been around since, I believe, X-Factor number one. He kind of got one in X-Factor 33, or at least he got more of one, which is when he made the decision to take this step. Exactly, yeah. It's around this. I mean, once we see Rusty making this ethical stand and being sort of confident in his actions, comfortable with his motivations, like, this is where Rusty Collins gets cool. And he gets, you know, a tragic farewell with Skids, to whom he's been linked romantically, some sort of great romance panel staging. It's really great, you guys. And with that, Rusty is off to prison and the rest of the teenagers are off to Phillips Exeter Academy. These are, uh, I think at this point, Skids, Richter, and Boom Boom. And this part is actually one of my favorite parts of the entire uh, miniseries. I kept coming back to this when we were talking about it. Because John Bogdanov, he's got a very expressive art style, but he just lets it go completely here. So we see the like prep school snobs at Exeter, and they're just so wonderfully cartoonish looking down their noses at everyone. One of them is named Muffy. They're all fashionably, richly dressed, and they just contrast so well with our team of scrappy ne'er-do-wells from X-Factor. I gotta say, I wonder how much of this is specifically supposed to be the way the X-Factor kids are seeing them, too. That's yeah. not quite clear. Although I also really love that one of them is named Muffy, which is the world's yuppiest name of all time. Yeah. And so like these kids take them in because they're new students, of course, and Iceman can't wait to get the hell out of here, which is understandable. And they're all being sort of faux nice to them. Like Muffy is taking the girls, Boom Boom and Skids around. Uh, she refers to Boom Boom as Tabby, by the way, which I think is hilarious. Which, which Tabitha is not fond of and is explaining to them about how you know they've got uniforms that they'll fit in and how it's so quaint that they lived on that big boat, which to be fair, was a floating celestial future spaceship. So honestly, I don't really know what you have to be arch about there, Muffy. 
Artie and Leach fare somewhat better at St. Simons. St. Simons is a school for kids with, at least from what we've seen, language-related learning disabilities. Actually, I really like St. Simons. I like the extent to which it's actually feasible and well-represented as a child-focused special ed program. It seems kind of awesome, yeah. Like, I'm really pleased that Artie and Leach, who are the most adorable Moppets ever, and I only ever want good things for them, are in this place that's going to take care of them for, like, the four pages that they're there. So let's talk about Taki. Taki is the one main character of the series who is a newcomer to the X-Universe. He is a student at St. Simon's, and he is a student who, like all of the X-Kids, because pretty much everyone off the top of their head, he is an orphan. His parents were killed in a car crash, and he uses a wheelchair. He uses a super fancy, tricked-out wheelchair, which we're going to get to at more length later. And he is an angry kid. He is also an angry, tiny champion for active and human-oriented neurodiversity, which I really, really love. So what if we're dyslexic and aphasic and stuff? I can build things like my souped-up double wheelie racer chair. It's the most special chair in the world, and Artie can talk with pictures. That's cooler than being able to talk plain or read. Yeah, Taki's a strange character because, on one hand, he's a kind of annoying kid. He's very confrontational. He's a little bit full of himself. On the other hand, he strikes me as kind of realistic. I mean, not the part where he's got a mutant power to, like, sort of squish machinery together to make new machinery, but in terms of his reaction to his pretty shitty circumstances. Yeah, I like that he's genuinely angry and genuinely sympathetic and genuinely interesting. I also really like the way his disability is portrayed because a lot of the time with superheroes, you see characters who are disabled or who have a visual disability that's largely either written out or adapted with in technology in ways that make it irrelevant or compensated for by their superpower. So, you know, Daredevil would be the latter example, actually, or also Echo or Ronin might, mm-hmm. be, might be the latter. And that's not the case with Taki. He's a wheelchair user and he has an awesome tricked out wheelchair that, again, can do a lot of things that get around a lot of the issues that are common to wheelchair users. So, for example, it raises him to eye level pretty consistently. It's very good at maneuvering around doors. It can fly. It can handle stairs. But at the same time, he's largely dependent on it for mobility. That gets in his way at times. And the maneuverability around it gets in his way at times. His superpower, to a great extent, is basically hardcore magic accessibility hacking. Yeah, that's a good way to describe it, And he he uses it in relation to his disability, but it's not explicitly related to his disability. And it doesn't erase or entirely counter his disability, which is really cool. And it's something that, again, you don't see much in comics, which is frustrating and one of the reasons that I really like this kid. So he goes on to have kind of a love-hate relationship with Artie and Leech. I mean, it's clear he wants friends, but he's also easily frustrated by them. Especially since when he's close to Leech, all his technology seems to stop working for some reason, which tells us the reader pretty immediately, of course, Taki is a mutant. What he's doing with machinery is through mutant power. Taki eventually and gradually starts to warm up to both of the kids, Artie more immediately than Leech, because Artie doesn't, you know, completely sabotage everything that Taki does by accident. Enough so that he is deeply concerned when Artie and Leech are abducted in the middle of the night by a bunch of goblins. I love the way this works out, because as the kids are just doing their thing, learning whatever, there are all these demons at the window unbeknownst to them, and they're just muttering, Little. Bald. Power, which really reminds me as nothing so much of the Nuprin motto, little, yellow, different, which of course I only know from Wayne's World, but whatever. Oh god, yeah, I, me too, actually. Right? I don't even know what Nuprin does. I think it's an NSA ID. As opposed to goblins, which are most assuredly not. Do not take medical advice from this podcast. Or from goblins. Unless they have valid medical degrees. That's true. If you meet up with Dr. Goblin, then go for it. Unless he's a doctor of something else, but if he's a comic book doctor, then he's a doctor of everything, including medicine. Dr. Goblin, MD, PsyD, Physics D, 
or whatever. Don't take our advice on anything. <laughs> Why are you even listening to this show? We are full of bad ideas. So are the goblins. But you know what's an awesome idea on the goblins' part? They leave creepy little effigy dolls of all of the kids they kidnap. I love that detail. We were talking about this earlier, how one of the things that can make villains who would otherwise not be scary a little bit scarier is when they have this specific list of rules they have to follow that's just alien and confusing to people who are not in that group. So the fact that this seems to be this compulsion to leave these dolls that obviously are not fooling anyone just makes them, like, super creepy. It's just part of the process, man. And unfortunately for the goblins, they have messed with the wrong Moppets. Artie and Leech may be relatively harmless, but they've got a friend and their friend is a really hardcore badass technopath. Taki has access to a lot of technology because he has a tricked out wheelchair that he is able to immediately turn into a battle chair labeled Goblin Buster with laser guns on it. I love this child. So is this a cartoon or what? It's a cartoon and it operates on a lot of cartoon logic. I mean, Taki's powers especially, I think, make him very well suited to that and that and Bogdanov's art make me really want to see an, a little sort of Exterminator's animated miniseries. I think it would have been so cool. That would be super rad, yeah. They do actually show up briefly in the original X-Men animated series, but we're going to get to that only at the very end of this episode because it's mostly irrelevant to the comics. So, uh, goblins slash demons have kidnapped Artie and Leech, thinking they're babies because they're like babies but better. Taki is attempting to chase after them and fails because as soon as he gets to Leech, as soon as he catches up, his wheelchair falls apart. So he does the only thing he can think of to do, which is to call their older friends. He tries to get in touch with the older ex-teens at Exeter. Unfortunately for them, Muffy answers the phone and reasonably is really unimpressed by what sounds like someone's little brother calling to make stuff up about goblins. She hangs up on him and she unplugs the phone, which leaves it to Taki to turn his chair into a helicopter and just go pick up the kids on site. I kind of love this scene because Taki's trying to figure out what to do and he does indeed turn his wheelchair into a like wheelchair helicopter ship thing and just flies over to Exeter and just yells at the various dorms that the kids have been kidnapped and he needs Skids and Richter and Boom Boom to come help. Which I gotta say, I would imagine this sort of thing does not happen very often at Phillips Exeter Academy. I don't know. Again, you should ask your brother about this. I should. He would know. It could be a regular occurrence. I don't know. It's possible. But, of course, at this point, most of the kids are happy to get out of there. Boom Boom especially. She just has well, wanted to blow up Muffy this entire time and no one will let her. Boom Boom and Skids are happy to go. Richter seems to be actually getting along fine with his roommate to the point that he asks him to cover for him in class the next day, to which his roommate amicably agrees, which again makes me think that this may be not that far out of the ordinary routine here. Yeah, Richter's roommate is a very chill dude, and I'm kind of disappointed that we don't get to see more of him. Oh, you gotta head out the window while you're still wearing your PJs to go save some kids from goblins and get in a helicopter on the way? Okay, it's cool. I'll take notes for you in class. Yeah, pretty much exactly, actually. <laughs> so now we have three teenagers in their pajamas, flying in a big wheelchair helicopter thing with a little kid they've never met trying to rescue their friends from goblins, and they're trying to figure out what to do. Now, while Taki can pretty much hack any technology, he can't indefinitely power it. They work out very quickly that they can use Boom Boom's time bombs to keep their airship going. So where they are flying at this point is to the naval prison where Rusty is in prison. They decide they need to get the whole band together, and that they are going to break Rusty out over his protestations. And protest indeed he does. Skids, don't you see? We can't let them treat us like aliens or something. We're humans born with special gifts. Boom Boom breaks in. We sure are. And we're using them. Now, three, two, one. 
And thus, Rusty is a wanted felon and a runaway yet again. His legal record is not looking good at this point. Yeah, Rusty is pretty much screwed when it comes to a fair trial at this point. (laughs) Yeah. But it's worth it because Moppet's in peril, man. And the Moppets are in so much peril. They have been retrieved and returned to Nastir, who is less than enchanted because apparently his small human's large bald head's round innocent eyes was insufficiently specific. These kids are too old. He needs proper babies. But his minions aren't as rushed as they might be because Nastir himself has come up against some difficulties. He is trying to use demon magic on Earth, and it's really, really hard. Now, we've seen this before. Ilyana Rasputin, of course, uses black magic, and she is an incredible sorceress in Limbo and can only do a little bit when she's outside of Limbo. Nastir's encountering the same problem. And now he's got these two Moppets to deal with who he has no use for and who look like they might end up being more trouble than they're worth because Artie projects immediate visions of X-Factor fighting Nastier, you know, coming to rescue the kids, and in doing so manages to communicate their location and state of affairs to their roving, flying compatriots. Also, I gotta say, his uh, vision thing that he sends to the exterminators of X-Factor fighting Nastier is super awesome, and I think when Artie Maddox grows up, he should do comic book covers because he'd be really good at it. That is super cool. I sort of wonder about the causality here. So he's imagining adult X-Factor fighting Nastier, but somehow the message gets to the teenagers. Is it a go get the grownups thing or is it a come help thing? I think it's a go get the grownups kind of thing. He might have intended it to get to X-Factor, but Nastier does cut him off. So it's possible that the Exterminators were within range and the X-Factor wasn't. It's never quite clear how Artie's powers work in terms of range, but that would be my guess. Now, the teenagers see this vision and want to go after them immediately, but Rusty, being the only remotely responsible one of the bunch, really by a fairly wide margin, I guess Skids kinda, sorta. (laughs) Yeah, Skids is his second place, and everyone else is like 73rd place. Yeah, so Rusty points out that they are in fact all in pajamas and prison clothes, they have no kind of supplies, the ship can't go very fast with all of them, they really need to call X-Factor and get some help. But to do that, because it is the 80s and not everyone has a cell phone yet, in fact almost no one does, they need quarters, and they don't have them because they are in pajamas and prison clothes. And so they figure, well, okay, there's a Pepsi machine over there. Let's use our powers and get some quarters out of that. And I love the way this works because Richter goes up and he's like, all right, I've been working on my precision. Let me just vibrate it a little bit. I'll get some quarters. But because he's been focusing so much on precision, he just gets one, which I guess is not enough in the 80s. I don't know how much fun calls cost. It should be enough. It wouldn't be enough for long distance. Trading efficacy for obsession with precise control is kind of what happens when you learn to use your powers from Cyclops, I imagine. (laughs) That's a very good point. And so Boom Boom's like, listen, bro, I got this. And throws a time bomb into the Pepsi machine and just sort of dives away in this kind of cartoony running in the air, holding onto her hair bow. It's great. Like I love the way Bogdanov draws Boom Boom. I love the way he draws everything, but I really particularly, especially and definitively love the way he draws Boom Boom. And honestly, you know, we've talked about associating specific artists with specific characters. Bogdanov is the guy who draws Boom Boom in my head. I think for me as well, yeah. And so the Pepsi machine, of course, freaking detonates, showering the kids, well, before they can get behind Skid's force field, with sticky, sticky quarters and lukewarm soda. Yep. Uh, Taki manages to rebuild the machine while the rest of them are sort of scrambling for the quarters, breaking into the snack machine immediately next to it for armfuls of meta-referential hostess fruit pies. Seeing Boom Boom eat hostess fruit pies I didn't realize it was a life goal until I saw it, but now I can check that box off. But unfortunately, they are in pre-Inferno New York, which means that technology is not on their side, and when they try to call X-Factor, the phone literally just laughs at them. (laughs) Which is awesome. Okay, so they're trying to figure out what to do next, 
And they hear pretty quickly on the radio that the cops are after them, which the makes sense. The cops are sense. after all of them for breaking Rusty out of prison, which honestly is reasonable and well within the standard range of activities for police in the New York metropolitan area. Now, this presents a complication for the ex-kids who have decided correctly that it's up to them to rescue Artie and Leech. And so go on the essential first step of their mission, which is to put together cool outfits. And they go to a place that I want to go, which is Rad Sport, Sport Fashion Outfitters. And guys, this sport, these sports, whichever it is, are indeed rad because the clothing they find here is uh, unique, shall we say. It's very much the 80s teenage superheroes outfitter. Like this place has a really striking range of apparel in terms of style and substance. And they actually do manage to cobble together fairly decent outfits assisted by or the They're better than the New Mutants graduation costumes. I will absolutely give them that. They are very character appropriate. They absolutely don't look like members of the same team, which is just fine. And uh, they are assisted by Boom Boom's inimical fashion sense and some really amazingly Bob Haney dialogue. Oh, yeah. Like at one point, Richter is talking to Boom Boom. Listen, dope, you might be born to shop, but we don't have a lot of time. We're like on the lam. You dig? Oh, I dig, Richter. I dig. I like this era because this is where Richter starts to get a personality himself, just like Rusty, and he's trying so hard to be cool. Like, he's finally gotten over his initial trauma of being captured by the right and all the horrible stuff that happened in Mexico, or at least he's gotten partially over it. And so seeing him, you know, try to be badass and kind of punk, especially in the open leather vest that Boom Boom picks out for him is great. Oh no, Richter is basically cosplaying Cannonball at a Lila Cheney concert. And so, yeah, we see Rusty end up in this traditional superhero, almost rocketeer-looking red outfit. With baggy 40s pants? It looks really good, actually. Okay. Skids is in a yellow bodysuit with a short blue jacket. I'm guessing the rad sport that was was like punk ice dancing or something. I can live with that, yeah. And Boom Boom has got like suspenders and a giant bow and... Are those hammer pants? They're not exactly hammer pants. They're hammer-esque pants, perhaps? Hammerish. They are hammer-related Boom pants. Boom Boom is dressed like Boom Boom, which is to say a lot of very bright pink and yellow suspenders, a big damn hair bow, sweet sunglasses, and the attitude to pull it all together. So now that they are properly attired, they head out. And they're actually going to be wearing these costumes for ages, but not before they decide to pay for it because they realize, crap, we just robbed a store. That's not cool. Also, apparently Taki is super rich and his powers extend to making a credit card from scratch. I don't think he should have that power. I don't think that's a good plan. Yeah, fortunately, he also apparently has the trust fund to support it, but he does that. He pays for the stuff they stole and also the stuff that they broke in the store. They head out, and Nastier's demons are lurking about, and they have been ordered to find the babies, but Nastier has also confided to Crotus that he would really like something to help with the formulation of his spells on Earth. And unfortunately for Taki, Crotus overhears him discussing some of the better features of the onboard computer on his wheelchair, which includes a spell checker. That's right. A driving portion of the plot of the Exterminators miniseries is a demon misunderstanding spelling versus spell-ing. And you know, I'm not mad at that because this miniseries is one giant cartoon and having something that goofy at the center, like, uh, that's actually pretty great. Crotus also has magical mutant baby finding goggles that I thought for like the first two issues as I was reading were just a viewmaster that he was messing around with. And I'm really disappointed that they're not. We actually saw those in uh, the X Factor issues that he was in when the demons went to the orphanage. She had those then. Yeah. And I still wish they had been a viewmaster there too. Entirely legit. It would have been so much funnier. So anyway, the kids head out and try to figure out what to do. But one thing they decide is that they need a name. They can't just be the kids from X Factor or Rusty and Skids and Richter and Boom Boom and Taki. What would be an awesome name for this group of children? 
Well, they're on the run from the law, and they decide that they are going to adopt the name that their adult counterparts had as their mutant terrorist personas and are now no longer using now that they are out as X-Factor as a mutant group. They are going to become the all-new, all-different exterminators. And to quote Boom Boom, Because we're going to severely exterminate some evil mutant goblin demon tail. Thank you, Boom Boom. Never change. Well done. The kids do, however, before they go off half-cocked, decide they should give at least one more try to calling X-Factor. Again, it doesn't work, but what's different this time is that as they're walking away, the payphone just sort of makes a mean face at Taki. After their unsuccessful attempt at the call, Taki sees the phone make a face. He tries to tell the teenagers they don't believe him. They also, it becomes clear, don't entirely believe him about the goblins. They know something has taken Artie and Leech, but, you know, they don't really trust him. He's not really one of them. Taki is a kid who we've seen have a lot of trouble sort of connecting to his peers. That continues to be the case here. Also, you know, because he's working with an established team of kids who are significantly older than he is. He goes off grumblingly on his own, feeling sort of left to the margins, which unfortunately leaves an opening for Crotus and company to swoop down and snag him. Now, this does verify his story that goblins have been carrying kids away. Unfortunately, it leaves the remaining exterminators without their primary mode of transit and probably the smartest member of their team. So they do the sensible thing and head to the New York Public Library. But as any good person who remembers the 80s will know, if you go to the New York Public Library, you're probably going to deal with some sort of haunting. Well, within a very specific context. Now, here's what I love about what happens at the library. Not only is it a Ghostbusters reference, but as far as I can tell, it's a reference to a specific Ghostbusters behind-the-scenes production still from the New York Public Library scene. So in the movie, books are flying off the shelves at the Ghostbusters, just completely disembodied. In the still, you can see hands in green gloves pushing them off the shelves, which is what you see here, only of course the green hands belong to actual demons. I love that. That's so deliciously, like, double meta. And yeah, I mean, the library just starts to get super haunted. There are demons attacking, there are books flying everywhere. One of the lion statues out in the front turns into an actual lion and fights them. Oh man, I had a picture book where that happened when I was a kid and it was so great. It was called Night Flight. And so the kids run the hell away from the library after successfully evading the assorted supernatural beasties after them to get onto the subway so they can get to the cemetery they saw in Artie's vision. Unfortunately, if your city is being taken over by demons, starting with all of the technology, the subway is not a great place to be, and the train immediately runs away and tries to eat them. As it turns out, this is because it is under the control of a skeletal demonic cryptkeeper-looking conductor, who fortunately reverts to human form when they knock him out. If only that were a more common solution in Inferno, if that actually worked, like that crossover would have ended so much faster. The X-Men would just punch literally everyone in New York, and it would have been fine. Hey, it worked for Peggy Carter in L.A. So yeah, after evading the train trying to kill them yet again by squishing its walls in and bringing the now-human conductor with them, they're pretty much in the vicinity of where they want to be, almost. Not quite close enough. So, alright, let's let's do this hypothetically. You're a group of teenagers, you're trying to rescue your friends, the subway just tried to eat you, but you're still far away from the cemetery full of demons where those friends are. What do you do? I mug some bikers. You mug some bikers. I mug some bikers because I am the exterminators and I have dubious but awesome decision-making skills. This is I feel like a a bunch of mutant, probably underage, probably unlicensed to drive. I guess maybe Rusty has a driver's license. Mutant teenagers on motorcycles 
is the really specific nightmare of like a very specific subset of adults in the Marvel Universe. I would say exclusively Henry Peter Gyrick, who not only is the Walter Peck of the Marvel Universe, but is also kind of the George Wilson from Dennis the Menace of the Marvel Universe. Ouch, that's not a good combination. You kids get off of my country, mutants! I you, totally you kids get off of my lawn and cease your unregulated use of nuclear waste. <laughs> that's a pretty specific statement right there. I feel like no one's ever said that statement. Walter Peck was right. He was an asshole, but he was right. I'm told that in the Ghostbusters comics that are currently coming out, they kind of go to the fact that Walter Peck actually does have good intentions. Good. I always felt really bad for him because, again, he's a jerk and he's a pedant. Like, it's so weird that the villain is an EPA guy. It was the 80s. There was a lot of, I don't Man. know, Reagan going on. I don't know. Anyway, there are Ghostbusters references in this series. This is topical. It's totally topical. It's topical. So anyway, newly motorcycled, the exterminators head out to rescue Taki. Meanwhile, the demons, now that they know what babies look like and that babies are not Ardian Leech, decide that they are going to use this newfound knowledge to kidnap a bunch of them. Wolvie, they're stealing a baby! You're just going to keep saying that through Inferno, aren't you? <laughs> through Inferno? Hell. Anytime a baby shows up and gets stolen, I guess. I feel like that happens sometimes, not just Inferno. I feel like we just lost all of our friends who are parents in that one moment. Wolfie, I won't steal those babies! Well, no, but if you keep saying that... Well, you know. Okay, so anyway, this part's actually kind of sad and poignant in a way that I wasn't expecting. We get this few-page cutaway to a young couple living in the suburbs. Uh, Helen and Tim, I believe, and I sort of expected them to be a parody, I think just because they look like the kind of parents who, at least in N. Nascenti written books, end up being just ridiculously over-the-top parodies of suburban sheltered life. But no, they actually seem like kind of good people. I mean, they're working long hours, they're raising a child. The wife is talking about how maybe she should get a job, and the husband says, no, it's great that you can stay home to take care of our baby. I think we can make this work and keep the house. And like, they're just really trying, and they're funny. I mean, he talks about how he's wondering how she can be so pretty in the morning. She makes a picture of Dorian Gray reference. We like them. And so, of course, their baby gets stolen by goblins, as typically happens. And, and Tim gets his throat ripped out. Yeah, the goblins attack, and the parents do their best to fight back, and Tim dies. And Helen tries to fight back and actually does manage to kill a demon, but is left screaming at the window as the remaining demons fly off with their kid. Damn, it, Helen. It really sucks. And it's weird because this is such a cartoony miniseries, and even when there is, like, horrible stuff happening and demons biting people, the stakes don't feel very high in a lot of ways. And in this scene, that changes. Yeah, this is pretty damn dark. This is one of several babies they've collected. Artie and Leech are currently taking care of them. And the goblins are getting frustrated because they've got these two extra kids. They've got all of these babies. And they would really like to be able to eat one of them. Come on. Like, there are extras. There are clearly going to be extras. I just keep coming back to the uh, Urukai that kidnap the hobbits at the end of the Fellowship, beginning of the Two Towers, you know? They don't need their legs, do they? I mean, they don't. Well, but yeah, now Nastier doesn't care. He doesn't want to hear any of this. I do not want to hear of your needs until my own are satisfied. You know he's just going to roll over and go to sleep after. I mean, come on. Pentagram of babies in the sky is just like, nah, forget you. <laughs> it's a very specific set of circumstances. Now, Nastier's base is in a cemetery. It doesn't get a lot of attention, but it gets a little bit. And some cops overhear the demon stuff going on there, head out to investigate, and immediately get captured by demons. They get dragged in around the same time as Taki, who has, again, been captured for the use of his spell-checking computer. And so Taki's being very defiant. He's not really scared of Nastier, just because Taki's primary trait seems to be fuck you guys, which I enjoy about him. Yeah, Taki's a good kid. We like Taki. I wish Taki came back more. I want to see adult Taki. Oh, man. Like, I want to see super badass, awesome adult Taki. We should probably look up whatever like happened to Like, tearing up the Marvel Universe. Mm -hmm. 
So Nastier attempting to intimidate Taki, and I got to say this would intimidate the hell out of me, does that thing with one of the police officers where he cuts his various bits of flesh and soul away until he's a goblin in a cop hat. It remains terrifying when he does that. So Taki manages to convince Nastier to not turn him into a goblin, saying, well, that might mess up my mutant power, and then I couldn't build your computer, right? And Nastier reluctantly agrees, but continues to threaten Artie and Leech so that Taki will help him. Taki, on the other hand, has figured out how to use his secondary power, which is being a massive pain in the ass. He is stalling for time, and he's doing it by basically just being a picky genius and saying, well, I can't work unless I've eaten. You have to get me fresh fruit. You have to get me these specific things. I don't want to eat anything else. I won't eat anything else. It'll mess me up. I won't be able to work. You need to take care of those babies. You need to get them diapers and food and better blankets so they won't cry and distract me. No more no. Again, you know, you need to do these things for Artie and Leech, and he's got this continuing, continuing, continuing list of demands. And Nastier gets fed up, understandably, eventually, and says, all right, well, if I can't eat them, then I'll have to set my demons upon someone else, and has them tear apart the other police officer who Taki does not have an emotional connection to. And Taki, at that point, is kind of scared into obeying, realizing that Nastier is serious. Nastier also takes this opportunity to do some excellent villain splaining, talking about why he's doing what he's doing, and specifically about the fact that, like you were alluding to earlier, Jay, he's doing his best to take over Limbo. He doesn't think Sim should be in charge. Sim has been completely replaced with techno-organic flesh. He's made of the techno-organic virus at this point. And Nastier feels like that means that Sim isn't pure, that Sim isn't really a demon, that only he, using the purest magics found in the sorcerer Belasco's spellbook. Remember Belasco? That guy? Yeah. Should be the one in charge. So Ugh, I like that- Nastier. Well, no wonder like... he gets along with Hodge. <laughs> right. But I do like that we get some motivations here for Nastier, that he's not just a demon mustache twirling villain. I mean, he is, but he at least has some justification for what he's doing. He doesn't have a mustache, and his justification is basically that he's kind of a bigot. Well, at least it's something. And hey, being a bigot is a villain trait, so there you go. I guess, yeah. So what Nastier is having Taki do is build a massive computer that looks kind of like a massive pipe organ. You know, I saw it that way to too, me, yeah. Yeah, it's got, you know, the usual keyboard, but it's also got a bunch of mystic symbols, which really just look like weird little keyboard glyphs. And they look like Lucky Charms. They look like Lucky Charms. They're and even like colored the, the same way. And signal and a times 10 button and stuff. Magic is weird, man. So I had like a TI-86 when I was in um, algebra back when I was a kid. This is like the TI-95. It's just a little bit more advanced. I did too, but the trouble with those is they've got alphabets in them, which means you can't do the impressive watch me spell out boobs with this LCD display. 80085. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Totally. And so, yes, the computer is continuing being built. Taki's doing his best to stall, but he can only stall so much before Nastier decides to, you know, do something terrible. So he's having to carefully manage that pace while still being a dick to everyone. And that buys the exterminators enough time to find him, show up, and attempts to mount a rescue. And promptly get captured. Yeah, because on the one hand, they're kind of badass. On the other hand, lots and lots of demons. So demons are many scary. demons. Whole, whole, whole lot of demons. And Nastier forces Taki to enter the final spell. Man, this spell is ridiculous. It is an inverted bisected pink triangle, a flaming sword, the bat signal, um, an X, a multiple sign, and then 10 to the first power. I don't know why they feel the need to specify that. I mean, that's but just math it's right just, there. No, it's just 10. That's just 10. You don't need to say to the first. Hey, demons do things differently. Remember that thing about us not being ethnocentric? Point. And this is apparently what it takes to project your babies into the sky and open a portal into limbo, at which point everyone packs up and heads to Times Square, which is apparently the central source of negative energy in New York because it's kind of creepy. I do not know. I have only been to New York like post 2000 when it was tourist destination and all souvenir shops. 
Apparently, it used to be like a shit ton of porn stores and peep shows, which I guess is what Nastier considers a source of negative energy. I think Nastier is just sex negative. I mean, we already know he's going to turn over right after he gets satisfied and go to sleep. And now he's talking about how all these peep shows and stuff are full of sin. Man, Nastier, get progressive, you know? Come on. So what's going on here, basically, is that 10 of these babies, the other three are going to be relevant in the X-Factor X-Men stuff that we'll get to in another episode. But 10 of these babies are points of this big pentagram outline. Essentially, Nastier is trying to create this magical pattern in the sky that will hijack Ilyana Rasputin's teleportation happening at the same time in the New Mutants comics to open a giant, giant portal between Limbo and New York to let this huge demon army through. So what you're telling me is that the spell he was casting is literally just a crossover. That's right. The spell is, in fact, just a crossover. Well, a then. magic crossover. Well, a New Mutants crossover featuring magic. And so things are really not good right now, basically. New York is getting just attacked by, I mean, it really seems like thousands and thousands of demons. So many demons that they can fill up an entire two-page spread, and that one of those demons in the foreground can actually bite the edge of the panel and start chewing into the page, which is a great, great image. That's my favorite panel from this entire series. And which again gives us just a great set of Bogdanov facial expressions on the demons. And Nastier, of course, would not be a supervillain worth his demonic salt unless he took this opportunity to gloat. Look up, ye denizens of Manhattan. Look up, ye human offal, for the end of your world is at hand. And I, Nastier, have delivered you into the hands of demons. So demons are pouring forth, and who also pours forth, speaking of that crossover spell, are the New Mutants themselves. Hi, New Mutants. Now, the Exterminators do not recognize these kids. They have not, for the most part, met them, and they definitely haven't seen their graduation costumes, which is what they're wearing now. They assume that the New Mutants are demons, since they're, you know, pouring out of the demonic portal with a well, bunch of demons. Well, and since Ilyana Rasputin is in her full red scaly dark Oh yeah, child she does form. just straight up look like a demon at this point. Nastier helpfully explains that, no, no, these are the New Mutants. They're not actually demons. Having successfully cast his crossover spell, he now casts an exposition spell. Right. And at this point, things kind of go off the rails. So, for three issues, this has been a pretty self-contained miniseries. Once the name mutants show up, it kind of goes to hell. Yeah, it's unfortunate because when I was a kid, I used to read a lot of miniseries just standalone. If I was bored or if I was in a bad mood, I would just pick up some four-issue or eight-issue or whatever series and just go through it. Exterminators was actually one of my favorites. I had a lot of fun with it. I'm sure part of it was the cartoony art. Part of it was that these characters I liked from X-Factor really got their chance to shine. But then you get to issue four, and it stops working as an independent miniseries because it ties so heavily into New Mutants. Now, at the time, I'm sure that was super, super cool. I wasn't reading comics as they were coming out at the time. But, you know, seeing, like, what was going on in that issue of New Mutants with Ilyana, crossover with what's going on in Exterminators. The thing is, like, these comics aren't just being read when they're coming out. They're also being read in collection years and years and years later. I mean, how long has it been since 1989? And so, for me, it's a little unfortunate that Exterminators doesn't stand alone because the parts where it does are really, really cool. Well, not only that it doesn't stand alone, but that it seems for three issues like it's going to stand alone and then doesn't. That's a weird switch. And, you know, there have been crossover bits. One of the cool things about a lot of the X-Books leading up is that you see bits and pieces of intersection. So you see Nastier's half of conversations with Madeline Pryor that we've seen her half of in Uncanny X-Men, you know, around the fringes and edges of scenes in, in ways that work really well. 
and that don't really distract or detract from the story. And it actually that reminds me a lot of the way that the, speaking of crossovers, that the big main Secret Wars title interacted with some of the miniseries, especially Siege. Yeah, that was very well done. Right. So that works. This does not so much work because it goes from standalone to full-on crossover, and not only full-on crossover, but full-on crossover that is heavily reliant on established continuity in the secondary title, in this case, New Mutants. And in fact, Nastier goes down to fight Ilyana Rasputin because, well, that makes sense. She's sort of the real leader of Limbo, even more so than Sim. And Taki's trying to figure out what the hell to do as he's being, you know, held captive by these goblins. And I love the way he handles this because he is coming off as just gloating about what a good job he did to assist. But in reality, what he's doing is trying to enact a way to fix all of this. He manages to sort of hint to Artie and Leech that they should just basically power cycle the demon computer, that they should just unplug it and that all disrupted, which they do. And the portal starts to fall apart, which frees the captured exterminators. Unfortunately, Crotus, in all his goblin minion fervor, is on the side. He is able to plug it back in, although he manages to significantly electrocute himself in the process. And then things devolve into massive, massive chaos. Nastir and Sim are slugging it out on the ground, playing out other parts of the Inferno storyline. The babies are still kind of suspended in air, but they're starting to slip. Fortunately, the disruption of the computer has broken the exterminators out of their prison, and so Taki cobbles together a massive interconnected flying air fleet of sort of old-school planes with individual cockpits for the exterminators, including Artie and Leech, who do fine in it, which is weird because Leech disrupts Taki's inventions when he gets close, but I guess not this time. I think he's just gotten very good with his power. I'm going to assume that's Suddenly, what's going on. in the last, like, ten pages. But it's a lot of fun because we see the exterminators in these bright red, like, cartoon-looking planes having a dogfight with demons in the sky, saving babies. The new mutants come up and help, and I love what Sam says when he shows up. You okay, fella? We saw you folks doing something up here, and we figured whatever it was, it must be a good idea, because the demons are wild to stop you. That's actually pretty good logic, yeah. It's Sam Guthrie. He is the best kid, and of course it's good logic. As much as I think the crossover does take away to a degree from this issue, it's really cool to see these characters we know and love, the New Mutants, teaming up side-by-side with the Exterminators, and also to see Bogdanov do the New Mutants graduation costumes, I think, better than anyone ever has. Now, uh, Boom Boom and Sunspot actually, and Warlock, know each other from the Fallen Angels miniseries. Boom Boom, you know, says hi. Bobby is not really particularly eager to revisit the time he got shown up by a badass lobster. So they have this great big fight in the sky. Speaking of fights in the sky and intersections of the characters, by the way, we see also in context of this, I think, the first appearance of what is going to become an unfortunate superhero fashion mainstay. Oh, right, because Rusty gets a head wound from one of the demons. Mirage, who can of course conjure anything out of thin air if it's what someone most wants, is able to conjure a bandage. Not just any bandage, though, but that thing that like Gambit wears on his head and Havoc does when he's right, an X the, like, Factor. facial buttress head sock. Yes, thing. and so Rusty's wearing one of those, and oh man, there are going to be so many going forward into the 90s. It's sort of like how Longshot kind of invented extra pouches for superheroes. Or at least popularized them, yeah. So the teams figure there's a lot going on. They'll split up and deal with it. Uh, the new mutants will grab the babies. The exterminators will save Taki, who is once again menaced by demons. Nastier has gotten sick of waiting for Taki's stalling, especially since Sim is now confronting Nastier. And so he just decides to use his demon powers on Taki to force him to uh, enact the spell. Nastier can't touch the computer because he's a demon, so, you know, Taki has to. And as Taki's hands are moving, he realizes he can't contradict those mystical orders, but he can sort of mess with them. And so he types in the buttons for the spell and then multiplies it by 10. The spell blows up in Sim and Nastier's faces. They recover, but 
it's obviously spiraled way, way, way out of control. Nastier is desperate to get to the computer, and he is stuck doing something he has thus far avoided, and that is grappling directly with Sim, who, as you may recall, is infected with the techno-organic virus, the very, very contagious and touch-contagious, in fact, techno-organic virus. Give it up, Nastier. You got defeat coming. One touch, and the techno-organic virus will transform you, so Sim can absorb you and devour you. Like the power plump pigeon you are. At which point Nastir responds in what may be the most anticlimactic Eowyn moment of all time. I am no pigeon. <laughs> I'm just imagining Eowyn pulling off her helmet, fighting the Witch King, and just yelling, I am no pigeon! And the Witch King looking really confused, but then getting stabbed and dying anyway. Also not a man. And so yeah, now we have Nastir as this sort of cyborg demon, and I gotta say he looks really awesome. Like he's red and all made of sharp lines and just looks genuinely intimidating, especially compared to the still very cartoony Sim. Now that he's got the techno-organic virus, he can do what Warlock can do, which is absorb inanimate matter and technology into himself, including Taki's computer, which presumably will give him the same level of control and spell amplification that the computer achieved. Taki decides he is going to risk transmutation. He touches the computer. He blows it up. And he doesn't just blow it up. He blows a lot of things up. In fact, to quote a caption, the explosion blows a hole in the sky. And yeah, after that, with the babies having been removed by the new mutants, with Nastier having been seemingly completely blown up by the exploding computer and his spells totally disrupted, it looks like the good guys won. Now, Sim is completely okay. Maybe he had more time to interact with the techno-organic virus and is thus able to better reconstitute himself, and he just sort of goes off to continue being a menace in the Inferno crossover. Taki has also survived the explosion, although somewhat worse for the wear. He is frustrated and upset that he has failed. He is reassured by his teammates that it's going to be okay and discovers that they have, in fact, saved all of the babies, or at least that batch of babies. Again, there are a few that are still in peril, and we'll get to those later, but not this episode. The Exterminators wraps up with a caption, but Inferno goes on as the Exterminators' adventures continue in New Mutants number 72 and 73. So much for a miniseries, man. Yeah, it's like kind of one of those, the end, or is it? But except it's the end. But no, it's not. It's absolutely not. But that said, this does lead into some really cool stuff. The Exterminators do indeed factor heavily into the next couple issues of New Mutants. And in fact, many of them join the team and stay on it for a long time. A fact of which I think a whole lot of people forget. Everyone remembers that Boom Boom and Richter are in X-Force, but they were in New Mutants for a long time. So were Rusty and Skids. And it's kind of great. It's going to change the hell out of the roster of that book. So that wraps up the miniseries, I mean, sort of in a very non-wrapped up way. What do you think? So, okay, the end is totally weird. I'll absolutely admit that. But I really love this series. It's just such a fun, demonic Saturday morning cartoon. It's such a cool little tie-in to Inferno. And it's really nice to see the kids from X-Factor actually get some time in the spotlight because they had really been underserved by that book, even though they were written well when they were relevant. For me, this made me really want to see more of Rusty and Skids and Richter and Boom Boom and even, in fact, Taki. We get a little bit of that in later New Mutants, but I don't know. I kind of wish the Exterminators had gotten some more time as their own team. So this miniseries, you know, I would still recommend it. It's flawed largely because of the ending, but there are so many fun moments that for me that totally overrides the negative stuff. Yeah, Taki is awesome. And again, I want to see adult Taki just raising hell. The Exterminators themselves, I don't think they ever actually come back in the comics, but they do appear in one piece of tie-in media. Most of the characters feature briefly in one episode of the original X-Men animated series in a somewhat altered context pulled from a different part of Inferno and changed significantly. 
Yeah, the episode is called No Mutant is an Island. Okay, first of all, that title is bullshit because Krakoa is literally a mutant who is an island. Okay, so we'll amend that. No mutant is an island, except for Krakoa, he totally is. Better? Yeah, thank you. And yeah, in this one, Cyclops, after Gene goes off as the phoenix with the Amicron crystal into the sun, blah, 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 is depressed, so he goes back to the orphanage where he grew up in Nebraska. Yeah, that's a great idea. That's totally going to help. Actually, it does here, because animated series Cyclops was not, in fact, raised in the horrible gaslight hellscape by Mr. Sinister. He just had a normal, mundane, horrible orphanage mutant childhood. And the orphanage, at this point, because of the lack of Sinister, the orphanage has been taken over by one of his only friends from his childhood who is now running it, and specifically running it as a mutant-friendly refuge, endowed by this villain who weirdly and randomly is the purple man Zebediah Kilgrave. Normally a Daredevil villain, he almost never shows up in X-Men, and he is basically doing the sinister thing, but he's also kind of being nanny in that he's been adopting all the mutant kids and brainwashing them into being an evil super team. Yeah, he's trying to use them to intimidate the governor out of office so he can enact his pro-mutant policies. But yeah, the kids in question are Rusty, Skids, Boom Boom, and Taki. And they're all, with the exception of Rusty, dressed exactly like they are in the Exterminators miniseries. No explanation is given, and Taki's powers are limited to him having wheelchair powers, which I feel kind of weird about. It's explicitly stated that his powers are wheelchair powers, which is sort of bizarre. But, you know, if you ever wanted to see Boom Boom and Skids and Taki in their amazing Exterminators outfits on screen, that is your opportunity, and it's really a weird one. Also, the Purple Man is kind of weirdly on model here, and there are a lot of kind of odd little incidents details like he's got a daredevil dartboard with the yellow costume which i think it's pretty dug. great yeah. yeah so yeah that's exterminators in the meantime you've got questions an anonymous listener on tumblr asks what is the deal with magneto's helmet when did it exactly get the psychic blocking magic that is such a MacGuffin, especially in the x films okay so i don't have any issue citations here but i do have a general gist so if i get something wrong i apologize i didn't have time to read seven thousand issues before the episode but here's what i came up with i believe magneto's helmet specifically blocking psychic interference actually was introduced in the first x-men movie shortly thereafter followed up in the ultimate universe where that's also canonical in the 616 universe it hasn't really had that ability now it has been used for some psychic stuff he can astrally project he can mess with people's minds we saw that in the x-men avengers miniseries i think it starts actually showing up and being able to block telepathy more after that X-Men movie. But before, the telepathy blocking, at least originally, was just something Magneto could do with a combination of willpower and the magic of magnetism. Yeah, I think mainly willpower, but there was that one time that we covered many, many episodes ago where he messes with the Earth's magnetic field significantly enough to severely limit what all telepaths in the world are capable of. That's why Professor Xavier isn't such a good telepath for a long time. Magneto is goofy. Magneto is goofy. Okay, an anonymous listener also asks on Tumblr also about Magneto also. What would you say the definitive version of Magneto is? Scene-chewing Silver Age Dick Dastardly? The more antagonistic foil to Xavier like in God Loves a Man Kills? The New Mutants teacher? The Separatist leader of the Acolytes? Every X-Fan's source of alcoholism Zorn? Or some other iteration? My answer to that is basically all of them except for Zorn. So, one of my favorite things about Magneto is that his role in relationship to the Marvel Universe in general, and the X-Men in particular, changes a lot, and it changes pretty organically and in ways that are largely narratively driven. He has inhabited all of those roles, and all of those are roles that I, I really buy for him, and I think the Magneto that I like best is the one who could feasibly be any one of those. Completely agree, yeah. Magneto's interesting because he grows and changes, not because he's just one thing and then written badly the rest of the time. So we are an entirely listener-supported podcast. Everything you hear here, everything you see on our website comes to you thanks to our Patreon subscribers, and some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the podcast, mostly from fictional characters. I believe today I am turning it over to the Demon Nastier. The portal has opened thanks to this child's spell-checking computer.
although I could have done without the infuriating autocorrect feature and constant prompts to upgrade to Windows 10. Even so, Sam Foreman and Ainsley Yeager, my loyal demon subjects, you have served me well. And so, it's baby-eating time. Jay and Miles explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon and produced by Kylie Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, Kaiju Cast. Special thanks to the meta-continuity wizard Al Ewing for a very substantial last-minute assist on this episode's cold open. New episodes of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, visual companions to every episode, along with interviews, fan art, recaps, reviews, and more. This podcast is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and stay ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, we'll be continuing our coverage of Inferno with a look at how the new mutants got to Times Square in the first place. As demons take Manhattan, Sim makes his big move, and Ilyana Rasputin's story ends the only way it could. Mm-hmm.